Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back today on Lift Your Legacy with kind of a throwback to what I used to be doing with the beginning of my podcast career where I was really interviewing Jewish professionals. Um, rabbis, mentors, people who in mind who of mine who have inspired me, and I'm thrilled to finally have him on. It's been such a long time, Rabbi Moshe Zeldman uh, from Asia Torah. He's been teaching for many years in the old city of Jerusalem, originally from Canada, and really made a huge impression on me because in the beginning I always thought, like with religion, that you have to kind of suspend your disbelief, and he really for the first time showed me that. Judaism actually has a lot of logic in it, has a lot of philosoph- uh, philosophic proofs in it, and you could actually be a thinking person and a committed Jew at the same time. So that was very exciting. Um, and today we discuss success, finding your stride in life, kind of navigating your your own personal journey, the way that the Jewish world has changed over his career, and ultimately about how... V- to find how to find fulfillment. Um, that being said, I want to transition very quickly into offering a coaching call with me, uh, free for 30 minutes. Um, I have a few openings now. I would love to find the right clients to work with, and uh, please feel free to reach out. Um, if you have, who, who, who am I looking for? What can I help? Um, I, need, I need people that are motivated, people that are trying to make big changes in their life, in terms of their career, in terms of their marriage, in terms of their business or their mindset. Um, and no obligation at all, just jump on a quick call and see um, what kind of solutions we can make. So with uh, no further ado, I give you Rabbi Moshe Zeldman. Rabbi, how'd you get to where you are today? Tell me a little bit about your background and what you're most excited about. Okay. Um, grew up in Toronto, Canada. Um, pretty second in life, went to Jewish day school, hated it, rejected it. Went to university, um, pretty much as an atheist by that point. Um, did my work in uh, artificial intelligence and philosophy, a lot of sort of sciencey types of things. And lo and behold, three years in, I meet some clever rabbis who tell me there actually is a rational reason to believe in God and a rational reason to believe in Torah. And I'm like, no way, man. I went to Jewish day school. I already heard all that stuff. And I know it's a bunch of nonsense. And Lo and behold, I was wrong. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) So I got so excited about the idea that that there is a depth to Judaism, a beauty to Judaism, a relevance, and a truth. It's really, it's the package of all of it. The rationality of it, the beauty, the depth, the relevance, the wisdom. And I just looked and said, like, this is crazy. Like, the whole Jewish world has no idea what they're missing. Even if you went to Jewish day school, sometimes even if you went to yeshiva, like, you have no idea. You learn it on such a, such a superficial level. So I really decided sort of very early, on, very early on in my own process of becoming more observant. I decided, like, I got to share this with the world around me. It, it, it's a crime that people don't know what's, under, what's in, their own, in their own backyard. And I've been teaching ever since. I started teaching before I met Rav Noah Weinberg, that's all, and I came to age. I had already sort of on my own picked up this idea that if you know something and it makes sense, you got to share it. And I meet him and he says, like, Moshe, you know, you know, a little Judaism, whatever, you know, you got to share. It's like, I've been doing that. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to convince me. I get it. 
says, ever well, since I've been involved in teaching and activism and spreading the word and, you know, creating programs. What was it like meeting Rabbi Weinberg for the first time? Was it one of those, uh, like, uh, you know, sun parting through the clouds moment, or did you really start to appreciate him the more you got to be around him? So what, what happened was this. I became observant in Toronto. I got very involved with Aish. Um, I started working for Aish. I started listening to his shiurim online, his classes online, not even online in those days, it was more tapes actually. <laughs> I listened to his tapes and I, I learned them up. I speak to the other rabbis, I would teach them over. And then he, was, he came to visit Toronto about six months later. I finally get to meet the man I've been teaching his Torah for all this time. I had a 10 minute private appointment. So I, it was really interesting. I, I, had, I really only had one question for him. I said, Rabbi Weinberg, I have one question. I, I remember it was like, like it was yesterday. I have one question. I said, you know, I'm working for Aisha Torah full time. I'm newly married. We're having Shabbos guests all the time. I'm teaching in the morning, preparing classes in the afternoon. I'm not every night teaching. I've got my own learning. I've got, I'm trying to work on stuff with my family. And I'm like, it's just, it's really busy. It's really hard. Like, I, I feel like I'm just juggling so much. Like, how do you do it? How do you handle all the stress of, of all these obligations? There's so much to do. He looks at me with this kind of quizzical look. He says, Moshe, if you're not loving it, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> he says, if you think you're doing all this to do God a favor, you do not belong in Asia Torah. <laughs> and it, like, it really, really was a paradigm shift. Like, the fact that I have this opportunity to share Torah, to take what I've learned, get it out to the masses, the fact that people are interested in learning, it, it really, I, I look at it not as an obligation, a responsibility. I really look at it as a tremendous, tremendous privilege. And he, he helped me see, I was, just, I was really, you know, fetching my way through it and feeling, uh, feeling like I'm being some big martyr, like Moshe Rabbeinu, like I'm going to sacrifice myself for Am Yisrael. He's like, this is the greatest joy in the world. You're bringing humanity back to God. You're teaching Jews about their own spirituality. Like, what could be better than this? So I fell in love with it and it made it much more pleasant. <laughs> so, I mean, now that, that's fascinating for, for the Jewish professional. That, that makes sense. What do, you, what do you account, does that also work for just Jewish people in, the, in, in life in general? Because I think that that sentiment that a person feels pulled and kind of, you know, trying so many different things. I mean, it's just, you know, there's a, um, recently Mishpacha was publishing a whole thing about Jews in the working world and how there's such a discrepancy and it's so difficult. And then if you tack on, and then my rabbi here in San Diego pointed out, you know, he doesn't even think that thing is relevant for um, most of the people, you know, kind of out in Golis because they're not really B'nai Yeshivas. You have a bunch of most, you know, people that are, that are, they're Bali Chuba. So, do you find that approach works the same for someone who's not as a professional Jewish teacher, but just as a Jew in general? I think it's harder. I definitely think it's harder. In other words, when you really have a full-time job in, a, you know, in, in, the, in the regular working world, so there, there, there sort of is this, this um, conflict a little bit. I got my job, my responsibilities, my family, my own learning. I want to do Kiru, I want to help other Jews and have Shabbos guests and have Tavusas and learn with people. It definitely is a real juggling act. But I think the more you really step back and say, listen, it's all about Hashem. It's all doing what God wants. So if I'm being responsible between taking care of my own family, taking care of my own spiritual needs, being involved in the Jewish world, I'll find a way to balance it because I'm just doing, I'm just doing Ratzon Hashem. I'm doing what God wants. So if I'm clear on... In other words, if I'm spending, if I'm running away from my family and spending time doing Q because I just don't like dealing with a bunch of little kids, <laughs> then that's my own personal shtick and it's getting in the way of me being responsible for my family. 
if I'm ignoring my responsibilities in Kiru because I just want to learn and be a big rabbi one day and, and I don't care about Jews that know nothing, that's also I'm sort of I'm fulfilling my own personal agenda at the expense of responsibilities. But if I really say, listen, God wants me to work on myself and take care of my family and take care of my financial needs and stability and be involved in helping on Israel, I'm really doing all of it in a way that I think God sees as a fair balance. Okay, it means I'm going to be, I'll never do any one of them perfectly. I'll always feel like there's never, I'd always want to spend more time with my family, do more cloud work, do more Kiru work, have more time for my own learning, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm juggling all the balls and I'm doing what God wants. It's not going to be a life where I'll ever be that satisfied with X because there's always Y, Z, and A, B, and C. So that's a fascinating idea. I was curious a little bit if you see, I guess, some of your students who have grown up and kind of moved on and are now in different, different you know, things in their life. In, in addition to that, you know, you didn't mention that there's a tremendous pressure, you know, in terms of work, in terms of financial obligations, in terms of not just about making money, but this idea of this upward work trajectory that, you know, certainly in the world that we live in in America is very much a part of. It's not just making a bunch of money, but you also have to have a nice title. You have to be you know, consistently growing. So I think that a lot of people, you said that, you know, this concept that, that God could feel like you have things balanced. But at least in America, I think what we see more and more of is that we don't know where the balance is and that each area are around people that are exceptional in one particular area. So, you know, you're comparing yourself to the Rav Noah, you know what I'm saying? And so how do, you, how do you find that balance and actually be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm doing the very best that I can do? So I, I, you actually sort of hinted at the answer in a very, uh, in a very accurate way that we do. We see the people that are the big Rebbies or the people that are just amazing in business or that are tremendous family people or, you know, whatever it is. And you say like, wow, they got it all made. And it's almost a given that if you're really, really excelling at one thing, there's something else you're really not and you're probably hiding it from others and maybe even from yourself. So I can't, I, I can't be the best businessman like those people and the best family man like those people and the best lum done from my own learning like those people because I'm a limited being only 24 hours of the day. So I think it's a lot more of internally looking at yourself, not comparing to others and just saying, listen, you know, given the number of hours I'd have in the day, what's my potential? How much do I really need to work on me becoming a much greater um, student of Torah for myself how much do I have the capacity to really influence others around me? How much money do I honestly need to make it in the workforce and you know, be financially stable for my family, for my kids? Um, how much time for my own learning, et cetera? In other words, I think the biggest mistake we make is comparing to others, but also just not taking a reflection of looking at ourselves in the mirror. The guy who's out there being a big businessman is probably doing it because he just doesn't feel, um, he doesn't feel accomplished by being, a, by being a husband or being a father. So, he finds his success in business and just not being honest with himself. Or, or it could also be that that the person that looks, I, I had this amazing, um, I had this amazing re realization only on the business side. I see this with the, with the Torah scholars, but you hear about, you know, the rabbis that are, that are learning, you know, 23 hours a day. And you start to realize that, th that their spouses are more supportive in a lot of ways than they are. And I also heard a uh, extremely successful person mentioned that he's in the office by 6 a.m. and he's and he's home by 11 p.m. and you know he's been he's a he's a multi-billionaire but I'm thinking to myself like this is a guy that's never home and 
a lot of times, you know, people are not okay with that. So I think that's also an important point that you're suggesting is that it's not just about what you think you could achieve, but it's also like taking stock in, well, what does your family want? And does your wife want you home? And do your kids need you around or want you around kind of stuff? Yeah. And, and the truth is it's so individual to the person and your family dynamics and the level of your kids' needs and your potential and your own Yetzirah of what you like or what's more comfortable for you. So it's, it's hard to give um, general rules because it really does apply differently to different people. And that's why I think the Klal Gadol for me, like the general rule more than anything else is really taking a hard look at yourself and make sure you're really taking the time to really make like a Cheshvan and Nefesh, your own, your own personal accounting. Am I really being responsible to myself, to my connection to God, to my family, to the Jewish world around me, to my neighborhood, to my community? And every one of those is a question that you have to ask and everyone has to just take the time to be honest with themselves if they're not ignoring one and calling it a bigger mitzvah to be involved in something. I, 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 I'm not, I, I struggle with it myself. I don't have it figured out. I'm constantly reevaluating my priorities and my needs. And as my family grows and changes and, and things change all the time, for sure. Well, that, that's something that I was curious about because what are, you, what are you working on now that you're excited about versus you know, what you're working on a while ago? I'm, it's funny because I'm so fascinated by how the Jewish world, and again, you're kind of at the heart of it in Jerusalem and Asia Torah, how you see the Jewish world changing and what the new needs of the next generation are, et cetera. So tell me a little bit about kind of what you're up to now. It's a good question. Um, one of the things Rav Noah Zetzal always implanted in me is this sort of dissatisfaction uh, we're never quite doing enough. There's always more that needs to be done. Thank God we got thousands of people coming to programs and classes, but okay, there's, there's millions of Jews. <laughs> we're reaching a tiny percentage. So how do we do bigger? How do we do better? So for many, many, many years, I was really focused a lot on teaching and developing my teaching skills and getting out there to audiences and traveling and, and campuses and communities. And, and, um, and really in the last few years, the last four or five years, I've become more focused on trying to innovate, trying to, you know, taking a step back from the actual frontline teaching and trying to figure out new ideas, new projects, new ways of sparking Jewish interest beyond the people that show up to the classes. Um, and part of what happened when I opened myself up to that is I realized this, I realized <clears throat> as much as my aim has always been, let's say the more um, unaffiliated sectors of the Jewish community, in the last three, four years, maybe five years, I'm getting a lot of calls from observant families, from yeshivas, from seminaries, from Beis Yaakovs that are saying, listen, you know, you've got all this wonderful Torah. Why are you keeping it for the Bali Chuba? We also need this stuff. We also need some, some uh, inspiration. We also need some answers. We also need some rationale. And I realized, and I never really saw this, like I, it's, it's kind of become like the same world that got me into Judaism, that the, the Orthodox world that got me to become observant, I'm now coming back to them and saying, listen, <laughs> I went out there, I've got answers to give you now that you don't have. <laughs> so they are Makar of me, I'm Makar of them. It's, it's, it's this weird, it's this weird cycle. So right now I'm looking at it as really three different populations that I'm dealing with. I've got my population of, let's call it the, um, the unaffiliated, the Paul Chuba crowd that comes into classes and goes to campus programs and all that stuff. That's, I still do that on a regular basis. I'm at H all day, essentials, discovery, fellowships, Hasbara, et cetera. Um, area number two is, let's say, the yeshiva groups and the seminaries that are basically committed, but 
have a lot of questions, are uninspired, are kind of weak in their passion because they don't quite get what they're doing, kind of doing it by rote. And, uh, and a lot of the Torah that I had to discover for myself really applies and really resonates with that audience as well. And then audience number three is those who have already left Judaism because they didn't get the answers. Um, and now they're, they're looking and they're finding that myself and other Kiru rabbis really have also the same kind of Torah that we take, talk to beginners really resonates with them also. It, it, it's sad to say, but I, I, I can tell you this, that I travel now to the States. I'll go to, I'll go to major from Jewish communities in Brooklyn, in Muncie, in Lakewood, all kinds of places. I'll give a class to pretty committed people that have been observant their whole lives in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. And I kind of feel like I'm talking to beginners. <laughs> you know, well, what is free will? How do we know there's a God? Men's and women's roles in Judaism. Age of the right. universe. Right. Basic, basic questions. I, without, without any kind of, uh, you know, casting any kind of guilt, I remember that experience also because I figured that, you know, once you kind of cross over into the firm world, then, you know, everyone's kosher and knows all this stuff. And, uh, you know, just like started, you know, chipping away. Like, do you guys actually believe in God? I was asking, you know, a couple of students. And they, no, I mean, I don't, you know, yeah. I guess we do because our parents are wise. So I was like, what? Are you serious? So it's yeah, exactly. interesting. I'm curious, talk about, clarify perhaps if you could, the people that you said have left Judaism, where do you find those people? Like, who are those people? What do they look like? So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this, I'm very involved with a seminary that I helped get off the ground a couple of years ago called Jewessence in Jerusalem. It's kind of like a follow-up to the basic beginner's women's program like Jewel, like a woman who's not ready yet for the full-blown seminary experience, but has passed the beginner's level. So we created like an intermediate program, I think it was three, four months long, sort of a bridge. And we just noticed in the last couple of years, we're getting a lot more applicants from people from that had grown up, and grown up in like Haredi Hasidish homes that are completely off and they want to come in. They're like, please, there's nowhere else to go. We can't go to the regular seminaries because they don't want us because we have a different culture and a different background. They think we know it all. So we morphed our program called Jewessence specifically to cater to that crowd for the last uh, two years, now two and a half years. And uh, I'm dealing with a group of girls. I think there's uh, 28 of them in the program now um, from like real, from very, like the pockets of really Haredi society in the States. And for whatever reason, the program, the, 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 um, the, the education or their family dynamics or trauma they experienced, whatever it was, made them not really jive with their Judaism. They completely left it. And now we've got a group of them in, in Jerusalem and we're, we're teaching them. We're going through a lot of therapy issues, and a lot of dealing with trauma issues and, and mental health issues and sort of, Derech Agav, as they go through a sort of mental healing, they come back to their Judaism in many cases as well, because they realize their issues with God are really just a reflection of their issues with their family or with their rabbis or with their communities or with their teachers or their, or or their with, principals. Or with, them, or with themselves. I'm saying with themselves. And, and, also, you know, yeah, that, very much with themselves. The, um, the, the, the negativity that is so often associated with anxiety and depression and just the inner voices of you're not good enough or whatever it might be, oftentimes we kind of put that and we think that's what God's thinking about us. And I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. You know, I, I have on a regular basis, I interviewed just today, non-Jewish people that are saying things like, well, I pray all day long just that God should make me the right vessel. For I'm like, what? Who are you? And like, <laughs> if only you loved yourself half as much as God loves you. And it's, it's fascinating because in 
in, a, in, a, in our world, I guess you could say, in the Jewish world, in the religious world, we don't get a lot of that. And there is a right. lot of kind of this negativity and this, this and I don't want to rag on it at all, but there's this perspective and this necessity to conform. And, you know, it's, is it something I can, I can ask you and, you know, you didn't grow up from, but is this something that is only becoming a bigger problem now? This is sort of always an issue. Like, what do you make of the fact that you're right? Like so many of the you know, classic Kiruv, you know, campus out, you know, all-stars are now primarily speaking to from audiences. What is that? What do you make of that? So I think it's a couple of things. I think one of it is that as, I, I haven't figured it all out. That's the truth. But I'll tell you this. Definitely as the from world gets more, whatever, surrounded by technology and smartphones, internet exposure and everything else, the questions are all out there. People are exposed to it in a way they weren't before. There's an organization set up now for from people to help them leave Yiddishkeit. And they're out there with their websites and all their anti-Torah stuff and all the scandals and the whatever. So th there's a buzz out there. Coupled with the realization that like, you know, there are answers. You go to the Kiruv rabbis that have dabbled in the stuff, that have delved into the stuff. We've got answers. But the truth is in a lot of cases, in most cases I've seen with kids that struggle with their Judaism, in almost every case, there's definitely something in the family dynamics um, either a very direct trauma or some sort of dysfunctional family life, um, could be learning disorders that make it difficult for them to just regular, make it in the regular school system. That's probably on the rise. There's no question the divorce rate in the Orthodox world is on the rise. Internet exposure is on the rise. The, the world is just getting more messed up. And I think the Orthodox world, you know, the walls are only so strong to, to keep that stuff out. And it affects people. A couple of along with the fact that, you know, the way we taught Torah 50 years ago, this doesn't work today. It's a different kind of generation. People are more into entertainment and quick answers. It's, it's a whole, by osmosis, we've picked up a very American culture. No matter how Haredi we call ourselves, unless you're living mamish in the middle of whatever, New Square, you're so surrounded by it, 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 it affects you and it changes your way of learning. And it means kids today are growing up with a different need educationally than they did 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> And also, I, I, I think that the, the, the technology has allowed us to, you know, as much, as much baggage as there is around the blogs and that people, you know, have, you know, because there's a screen where are trying to hold back and, um, you know, are, are, are not as you know, applicable and can say whatever they want. I think on the flip side, that the real beauty of that and the benefit is that if a person's been sitting with a serious hashgraphic issue or, or a marriage issue, they don't want to go to their rabbi. They don't want to tell their community because of all the stigmas that are around these kind of issues that now they can sort of, because of social media, reach out and acknowledge and actually find that a lot of normal grown-up people have these kinds of problems. And it's not, exactly. you know, it's not a problem with you. It's just that there's, you, you don't have the, the resources in your immediate, you know, dollar almost to, to figure it out. So, and, and, and you don't have the stigma of having to go to your local rabbi. You can find somebody yeah. online and email. Very true. I'll tell you, to me, the, the one other area that to me is, is fascinating is that we've definitely seen the trend in the last 20 years that Kiruv has become more difficult. It's more challenging. It's harder to get students' attention, harder to get people to take off time and come to Israel to come to Yeshiva. The numbers are smaller. Um, for me, the issue is not even quantity. Qualitatively, the kinds of students that come to Israel are not, they're, no, they're, they're much less likely the Ivy League people really going places in life. It's more people that are like, yeah, sure, six months, go to Israel, why not? <laughs> I'm not going into my life anyway, type of thing. So qualitatively and quantitatively, here is more of a struggle. Um, 
so sort of the easy out is so forget about that let's just go after the from people they want torah anyway they're interested forget the kid i couldn't be bothered with here it's too much work it's too much a hassle they're not they're not interested so i don't like that direction i think it's a cop out i think we really owe it to people who have never had a chance at all at least as much to give them the chance as the people who, who just you know didn't have a fair shot but at least they had a shot so for me the focus really is right now on innovation in other words, if you look at all the organizations, the Aishas and the Chabads and, and, and the JLEs and the NTSYs and the, all the organizations, you know, we really are reaching in a meaningful way two, three percent of, of, of non-religious, non-observant Jews. The other 97 percent just really don't care. They're so disinterested. My question is like, how do you reach them to begin with? So I'll tell you a shocking, a shocking, I'll tell you a shocking story. I had... Um, I was talking to a very senior figure in Birthright, one of, the, one of the heads of Birthright a number of years ago. And he tells me that they're planning on expanding the age range of Birthright from whatever it was to why, because they want to get more kids coming. To 65? And he said, I don't get it. <laughs> 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 I think it was up to 27. I forget the number. Anyway, he said, I said, like, you're getting 30,000 kids a year. Like, what are you worried about? He says, we should be getting hundreds of thousands. I said, what do you mean? He says, right now, the statistic was, I think he said 66% of eligible American Jewish college students, 66% never even applied to go on the program. And I looked at him like, it's a 10-day party in Israel. It's not religious. It's not political. It's guys and girls partying on the beach and riding camels for 10 days. Like, who could say no to that kind of an offer? It's free. So... He was also kind of stumped, like, I don't know how to get them. I don't know why they're not coming. So my next trip to the States, I went to visit a few campuses, and I asked students, I said, listen, you ever been on birthright? And a lot of students said, no, I'm like, like, explain. Like, I said, listen, if somebody offered me a 10-day free trip to Ireland, I would go. Why not? It's free. Like, what, what, what could go wrong? Do you know what the most common answer was? The most common explanation of why students go is they said, you know, it's not for me. I'm not that Jewish. I said, what do you mean you're not that Jewish? You're Jewish. Yeah, but you know, I never had a bar mitzvah. I don't know the Hebrew songs. I never went to a Jewish summer camp. I, I'm, so I'm not that Jewish. And you've got 60, I know it's anecdotal. You've got a huge number of Jews that say they are technically Jewish, but they just don't belong. That, like, that's not my club. I don't belong there. I don't, I've got tattoos. I never had a bar mitzvah. I don't know the songs. I've never been to a synagogue. So I don't even count. I'm not part of the team. And it means when we're on campus trying to reach out, you have to realize like two thirds of the people you're trying to reach, <laughs> they don't see themselves reachable because they don't even think they're supposed to be there in a Jewish program or, or on a free trip somewhere or whatever it is. That's the struggle of reaching people. Hmm. So what do you do? So for me, the goal is two things. It's innovate, and I'm, I'm experimenting with a few new programs right now to innovate and try to reach out to a, a wider swath of Jews that, that we've ever reached before. Like what? And number, or are, you, are, you, are you limited to say that or at, at liberty to say that, or is it under wrap still? I'll give you one example. Okay. A program I started uh, last year called Meet the Israelis. And what it is is it's specifically aimed at non-Kiruv-oriented trips, like a birthright trip, a Hillel trip, a Federation trip. And what you do is you bring them into a room and have them meet, almost like speed dating. In small groups, you meet with six different Israelis. You meet a left-wing Israeli, you meet a settler, you meet a soldier, you meet an Ethiopian immigrant, 
you meet an Oleh Hadash, and you meet somebody Haredi. Now, almost anybody coming in has, at some point in their life, has never met either somebody from the left or somebody from the right or a real-life Ethiopian or a real-life soldier or a real-life Haredi. And just giving them a chance to realize, like, the Jewish world is so much bigger than the bubble you're living in. And for me, the goal is I want to give them that exposure to the Jewish and Zionist and political side of, like, expand your horizons. You live in this bubble of your reform temple or your Orthodox synagogue, or your right-wing political views, or whatever it is, like, there's a bigger Jewish world out there. And the more you see that there's so many people that are passionate in different areas, and it's stuff you don't know about Israel, about Judaism, it gives people a chance to really expand their connection to being part of Am Yisrael. So it's innovation, that's one example. And then step two is to empower. Once people are, once people are, once people are innovating, and they're getting into the door that they would never come before, those are the people who can reach their friends who are unaffiliated. I can't reach them. I'm a rabbi in Jerusalem. But you start with an inner circle and you empower them. That can have a ripple effect to the people that right now are unreachable. I can't reach them, my friends, but I can reach their friends, friends, friends. So I, I, I'm curious if you feel that, you know, with, when you had such um, influences like Rav Weinberg and in general, you're on the front lines to... Yeah, and you're seeing these kind of statistics and, and, and everyone's honest about it, you know, that, that quote unquote, it's, it's, you know, it's not working anymore. And, you know, we're trying to make all these people observant and then they become observant and then they wind up in my seminars, you know, five years later, or their kids wind up there, whatever it might be. Do you look at the future with a sense of, um, I guess you could say, is, are you excited about what it, what it looks like? Is it, it, it do you, do you feel enthusiastic about the upcoming challenges or does it does it kind of take on a certain level of how do you push away that uh that frustration i guess you can say so i have no frustration whatsoever i'll tell you what i, I tell you what i've learned from the girls they deal with from this program of girls who have left yiddishkeit and are looking to come back i'll tell you what i've learned it to me it's a key lesson it, may, it might be the key lesson is that when i'm talking to them about emuna bitachon knowing that god loves you reaching your potential because they grew up in a system that was kind of superficial and the rabbis always look like they have all the answers even though they don't, they can sniff out fakeness in a second. In a second. So I've got to be so authentic when I'm teaching, with, specifically with this group. I can't, I can't play games like I'm Mr. Bitachon, Mr. Perfect Midos, Mr. Perfect Family. Because they, 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 they've grown up, they've learned how to tell the truth from the stuff that's put out there. So to me, the thing that really breaks through for this crowd, I think for any crowd, is authenticity. It's really about authenticity. And I think the whole phenomenon of the Balichuva that become religious and then leave five years later is because they went through this kind of superficial, put on the black hat, wear chillin' every day, go to shul, call myself a Balabite or a, or a Ben Torah. But having to really struggle with your Yiddishkeit, like, do I really get it that Hashem loves me? Am I really working on my mitos? Do I really do a cheshbon and nefesh? Authenticity keeps it real. Whether you're from or not from, I think the things that cause people to get bored in the yeshivas is there's a lack of authenticity. The kids that leave is because they had real issues and they weren't, they weren't handled in an authentic way. And I think the Bali Chuba also that end up getting bored or, or lose their passion also there's a lack of authenticity. If you're, not, if you're not struggling, wherever you're at, whatever path you're on, if you're not struggling with your Yiddishkeit, it's going to go stale and your kids are going to have a hard time making it through the system. <laughs> to me, it's the key. So I, to me, all the challenges 
kind of bring out a whole new level of upping my game and teach me about what, what it means for me to take my English quite seriously. And then I can share it with other people. And I, I find it, I like the challenge. I never get, I get, I get frustrated, but it just pushes me to, to dig deeper and do better. I think, I think that's this, that's the solution. I guess that there was a, you know, in the short term, you mentioned that, you know, kind of seeing that you have the opportunity to share Torah, you know, that, that Rav Moshe that, uh, Weinberg taught, told you about, or, I'm sorry, Rav Noah Weinberg taught you about. And, and, but, but then the second concept that, you have to consistently get better and that that's not a lesson that you can just, you know, kind of put out there and just kind of throw around there. But you also as the professional have to continue to get better is something that keeps you, I guess, consistently sharp and excited about, uh, about the future. You got to walk the walk and talk the talk. And if you don't, you'll, you'll burn out. Your students will, 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 will get past you. They'll burn out. And people, people know when you're being real and you're not being real. I, I've definitely seen that. It's definitely helped me take, stay very much on my game. Fantastic. All right, Rabbi Zeldman, how do people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Uh, that's a good question. I've got many different addresses these days. Um, I'm doing a lot of seminars in the States. Oh, I've got, yeah. Um, I've got a WhatsApp group that I started for people that want some daily doses or whatever weekly doses of, of, of good thinking material. Okay. Um, I'll give you my, probably the easiest is my email address. Okay. And, and you can post the phone number also if people want to subscribe. Sure. Okay. It's M Zeldman, Moshe Zeldman, Z-E-L-D-M-A-N. So M Zeldman at H.com. And uh, my phone number, not for private calls, but for subscribing, <laughs> is uh, 054-256-2888. You can Amazing. subscribe and I'll put you on my list. <laughs> Amazing, Rabbi. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.